Timothy. So how many of you are excited to hear God's word today? All right, I know it's going to bless you. Give a, one more hand to our associate pastor, Matt Belusin. Hey, good morning. Thank you for uh, joining us here at Every Nation Church, Las Vegas. Like Pastor Roland said, my name is Matt, the associate pastor. Really glad you could join us. Today we're concluding our series, Learning to Lead. And this has all been about lessons from the Bible's best leaders. How many of you have taken something, learned something over the past month or so? Cool. Um, I'm glad to hear that. And I think that God wants us to end in a way that blesses everyone, whether you lead in a large scale, a lot of people, or if you lead in your family or in your relationships. Uh, this applies to everyone as a leader and applies to everyone as an individual. Um, and I thought it would be good to conclude this series with a book in the Bible that was actually written for the purpose of leadership development. Didn't know if uh, we were realizing that existed, but... um. The Apostle Paul wrote the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy as two letters to Timothy, his spiritual son. And in these letters, Paul is writing them actually from prison. And he knows that his time on earth is running out. He doesn't know how much time he has left. He doesn't know when his life will end. So he's using every moment and every opportunity to prepare this young man who he's come to accept as a son, who he's empowered as a leader, and he wants to give him everything he can up until the Lord calls him home. At this moment, Timothy is in Ephesus. He's pastoring the church there. Ephesus is one of the most important churches in the region. So he's growing as a leader, but he still has a lot to learn, as we all do. So let's see what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Here's what it says. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is the word of God to us. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's telling him what it will take for him to become an effective Christian leader, and really to be an effective Christian. And it's a tall task, because when Paul writes about honorable vessels and dishonorable ones, when he talks about changing your direction, what he's really saying is that you need to go through a total transformation. You essentially need to become a brand new person. And when I looked in the mirror this morning, I look exactly the same. So how on earth do we become a new person? That's what Timothy had to talk about. That's what he had to do. That's what we have to do. And that's what we are going to talk about this morning. But let's pray first. God, thank you that you give us a new opportunity in Christ to become new people. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would guide us along that path, that you would show us what it means and what it takes to become new in you, and that you would stir us up in our hearts to follow you in that direction. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, so much of the Christian life has to do with newness. 
becoming a new person, doing new things, seeing things a new way. So all week long as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm just thinking about new, 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 brand new, brand new, brand new. And uh, it made me think of something that I did with some friends when I became a brand new Christian. Because when I started following Jesus, I, and still do, I had like this really passionate love for hip-hop music. And at the time, I was dabbling as a rapper a little bit. So when I got saved, I got saved, and I started praying, and I'd start just rhyming things. And uh, we actually performed for our college ministry a few times. And the first song that we ever wrote for our ministry was called Brand New. And it was all about how we become brand new in Christ. This is not a brand new song. In fact, it's pretty old. And you're about, to, you're about to see that there are a few references in it that date it. However, this is how it went. So, check it out. Chapter 5, Corinthians, part 2. The old passed away. All things become new. We run it like new shoes and kick it like kung fu. Because this is how we do whenever we run through. So move back with your bad crew as I pass through. Feeling brand new like the iPad 2. God's grace is abundant. We have a new covenant. My sword is never blunt because God's word's in front of it. I couldn't make the cut like childproof scissors. So he gave me an assist like John Wall from the Wizards. <laughs> now I'm hooked like a fisher and I feel a little different because my life in God is a slam dunk, Blake Griffin. Oh, man. I am a Christian promoting peace and never strife. I only kill a beat so I can bring it back to life. That's how I get ahead and stay clean like shampoo. Jesus is the reason why I'm feeling brand new. In Jesus, we can feel brand new. And we can feel brand new because we have a brand new foundation. And we belong to a new family. That's what that passage in 2 Timothy talked about. It talked about the firm foundation of God still standing and God knowing the people who belong to him. These two things speak to building and to belonging. And these are things we all need to hear about because first, we are all building our lives on something. When we live our lives and go about them, we're doing things to build a life for ourselves. Maybe you're going to work or school because you want to build a successful life for yourself for your family. Maybe you try to avoid chaos or confusion or difficulty because you want to build a comfortable life for yourself. If we take a real look at the things that we do, especially the things we do intentionally, the things that we do consistently, we're doing them to build something. But we're building on something. We're building on a foundation, a foundational set of beliefs that tell us why we do the things that we do. So perhaps we are building a life that we want to be successful because we have this foundational belief that tells us if I am a success, in whatever context that is, then I will be respected and appreciated and viewed highly and esteemed, and that's what I want. Because making, feeling those things, being viewed that way, it'll cause me to feel complete. Or if we think about the other direction, perhaps we are building a comfortable life because our foundational belief tells us that if I can be comfortable or if I can avoid trouble, or difficulty, or if I can avoid things that cause me anxiety, then I will be happy and whole and complete. 
then I will feel good. That's a life worth living. It's a foundational belief. If we live for a romantic partner, perhaps the foundational belief tells us that if I am loved by someone in a romantic relationship, that it will provide me with the approval and validation that I need to get through all of life and all of its difficulties. Or maybe, like me, you like to win. That's one reason why I was a rapper. It's one reason why I had to stop rap battling people. Because I couldn't bless people on Sunday and then go and see them in the club on Friday and be like, yo, drop the beat. You're whack. You're whack. You're wiggity wiggity whack. I eat you up like a Big Mac. I, I couldn't do those things anymore. But maybe you want to build this victorious life because we feel in establishing ourselves as champions, as victors, then we prove that we're worthy and good and worth honoring. There are foundational beliefs behind everything we do. The problem with the foundations that we choose is that they are often not strong enough to bear the full weight of our lives. So when the storms of life come, it reveals that our foundations are impermanent and weak and incapable of giving us everything that we wanted to find in them. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.11 tells us that no one can lay a foundation other than that which has already been laid, who is Jesus Christ. We find a strong foundation in Jesus, and we know that because Jesus was tested. When Jesus left heaven and walked the earth, he was tempted every way that we are. And yet the Bible tells us he did not sin. He rejected temptation. In fact, he even beat the devil one-on-one -on -one in his face when the devil tried to tempt him. So Jesus com completely succeeded in that area of rejecting sin in a way that no one else ever has been able to. And yet, in spite of his righteousness and his goodness, Jesus went to the cross. And he went to the cross to take our place for our sin and pay the penalty for the bad things that we've done. But death itself could not hold Jesus. And three days later, he rose from the dead to prove that he is the Son of God. And he offers salvation and forgiveness and relationship with God both now and forever to anyone who repents and who believes in him. So Jesus was tested by sin tested by the devil, tested by death, and he's proven that he's stronger than all of those things. That means we can build on him as a firm foundation for our lives. We can build on him, and we can belong to him, and we can belong with him. John chapter 1 tells us that for all those who did receive him, to anyone who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I remember being on the playground as a elementary school student in kindergarten and we'd play with bugs and somebody would smash a bug and another kid would jump out of the side and say hey that's God's child we're all God's children but myself now having walked with God having been a pastor I know this is theologically incorrect five-year-old kid because we're not all God's children we are all God's creation but only those who place their faith in Jesus become children of God. And we are adopted into the family of God. And in a healthy family, children don't need to work to earn love. They're already loved. My wife, Jerrica, and I, we loved our daughters before they were ever born. They didn't have to do anything to earn our love. And in fact, now that they are out, they require more work than they put forth for us. But we love them anyway. We're not waiting for them to set up the house or clean it. They're loved. 
And anything we teach them is for their good and for the good of our relationship. And if you are a child of God, then that is how God feels about you. Sometimes we might have grown up with a religious background that tells us we need to do before we can be loved. But the gospel tells us that Jesus has done it all, therefore we are already loved. God already loves you. We don't need to work to earn his love. And anything he tells us to do is for our benefit and the benefit of our relationship with him. We're loved. And this is where we already stand as believers of Christ. We can build on him. We belong to him. That's the place of newness where we resided. It's in this place of newness that God makes us new people. That's how we become new. God does it. God makes us new. That passage in 2 Timothy referred to everyone who names the name of the Lord. To name the name of the Lord is to say that I believe in Jesus. I follow Christ. I want to know him. I want to be like him. I love God. God loved me. I know this with every fiber of my being. I believe in him. And most of us here have already done that. Who here has named the name of the Lord? Right, a lot of us have. We identify ourselves with Jesus. We follow him. And that's important because something happens inside of us when we name the name of the Lord. When we do that, God instantly recreates the core of our being and transforms us from the inside, which flows outward. This is why the Bible tells us in places like Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, for if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this is what I referenced in my rap earlier, chapter 5, Corinthians part 2. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. She is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. And the new has come. So God makes us new people when we confess Jesus and when we name him as our Lord and our Savior. And this is something that God is fully and solely responsible for. Sometimes we refer to this process where God recreates us from the inside out as justification. Uh, It's a theological word, but I think it's important to talk about this sometimes. Justification is a theological word with a legal background. And this means that Jesus has fully paid the obligations for our sin before God. He has justified us. Jesus makes it just as if I'd never sinned. That's one way to remember it. And that's something that he has done all by himself apart from us. He's made us a new creation. He's made us a new person. One example or one metaphor that Jesus used is like being born again. You're born again, but when we're born again, we are born And we're a baby. And we're not meant to stay that way. We're also meant to grow. We're meant to change. We're meant to become more like Christ. And that's another way in which we must become a new person. So this process of growing as a new person requires our participation. So God makes us brand new and he changes our nature, but he works with us to change our behavior. And one of the words we use to describe that process is sanctification. To to sanctify means to set apart. So this refers to the process of becoming more and more set apart, more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Which is why that passage in 2 Timothy said, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart. 
from iniquity. There is a part that we are responsible for, and we need to depart from our iniquity as part of that. Iniquity here refers to sin and all of sin's consequences. And of course, sin can refer to the bad things that we do. Uh, we were on campus a couple weeks ago with the missions team that we got uh, from Reno. Shout out to AJ. Shout out to Michael. <laughs> shout out to everybody. Isabella, Mallory, all of them. And uh, we're out there on campus and we're talking to people like, hey, what does sin mean to you? And one of the guys that I talked to said, hey, sinning is breaking one of the Ten Commandments. I'm like, that's a great place to start. So, hey, if you bow down and you worship a statue, sin. You murder somebody, sin. Right? No, no questions about that, right? If you steal, if you commit adultery, it's sin. So sin is the bad things that we do. But it's also more than that. Sin is our bad actions, but it's also the bad aspects of our character. So sin is the anger inside us that causes us to shout at people or give them inappropriate hand signs on the road. The hand sign is sin, and so is the anger that causes us to do it. Sin is the act of overspending or gambling in ways that harms us and harms our families, and it's the greed that causes us to do those things. Sin is pornography and the lust that causes us to do it. Sin is judging others and looking down on them and looking down on their contributions and believing that we know better in every possible way and it is the pride that causes us to believe it. So sin is the bad action and also the bad aspect of our character, the things that exist inside us and God is telling us that we need to leave all of that behind. We need to depart from that kind of iniquity. And it's very important that we do so because there are consequences that happen when we don't. If we don't grow, then we can cause pain. This passage that we read earlier, it refers to a great house. And in this great house, there are different vessels. A vessel is a container. It's usually empty and it has a purpose. So some vessels are for honorable purposes. Uh, I think of people who have fine china in their homes, special dishes that you bring out for a holiday, a special occasion, an esteemed guest. This is a vessel for honorable use. At the same time, some of us might have a favorite coffee mug. Anybody have a favorite coffee mug? Yeah, so I've got a couple. One, it says Mr. It's like a little Mickey Mouse cup. Jerrica has a Mrs. cup, it goes together. It's, it's real cool. We've got a, like a little Starbucks collection of mugs that we've bought in different places we've traveled to. Favorite mugs. But we also, my favorite, favorite mug is called an ember. It's the one that maintains the temperature of your coffee. It's a vessel for honorable use. I also have cookware that I love. Vessels for honorable use. My cast iron pan is for honorable use. Yes. You know it, bro. Stay on that. Well done is poorly done. That's all I'm going to say. So we've got vessels for honorable use, but we also have vessels for dishonorable use. A trash can is a vessel. It is a container, and it's hollow, and it has a purpose. And that purpose is to hold all of our waste and all of our raw meat packages. There are two particular trash cans in my house where my one-year-old baby lives and poops her diaper. 
And those two trash cans have the specific purpose of keeping the smell of her poop on the inside and not letting it out. They're helpful, but it's dirty. So in a sense, it's a dishonorable use. Technically, a toilet is a vessel. It's empty. It's gross. Dishonorable. And I think it won't take us that long for us to think of or even name vessels or people in the kingdom of God who brought dishonor to his family. One name that comes to mind for me is Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was the lead pastor and founding pastor of Willow Creek Church. It briefly became the largest church in America. He was a prolific author. He actually wrote my favorite book ever on interpersonal evangelism. And Bill Hybels was a a creep for decades who made inappropriate comments toward women and he behaved irresponsibly toward women and brought dishonor to the family of God. This past week, I was online and I saw a headline having to do with a man named Carl Lentz. Some of you know the name. Carl Lentz was the lead pastor of Hillsong in New York City. Well, it turns out that Carl Lentz was having an affair. And the woman who came out and said, hey, I was having an affair with this man while he pastored this large influential church and took pictures of himself with celebrities. I'm not actually the only woman. I think of men like Ravi Zacharias, who was considered one of the world's greatest apologists and had so many great things to say about faith and intelligence and logic, and yet he was sexually abusing women. Dishonor to the family of God. And I don't need to go that far to come up with these examples. I only need to go in my own family because my dad was one of these leaders. Many of you know that Every Nation Church Las Vegas was not the first Every Nation Church in Las Vegas. That would have been Grace Bible Church Las Vegas. That was founded by my father, Greg Bolusa. And this was a church that was initially doing very well. People's lives were legitimately being changed, and they were getting saved, and they were coming to know Jesus and finding hope in him, and people were being healed, and families were being restored. Some of the people in this room got saved in that church. God was doing great things. But life still happens, and tragedy and stress still comes. And when these things came from my dad, he didn't run to God. He ran to a history of sin that he had learned growing up, that he never fully renounced, that he never fully dealt with. So he began to do things like drink or gamble, and he hid them from everyone. So whenever I'd ask him how he was doing, or when Pastor Roland would have asked him how he was doing, he'd say, fine, and We had no reason to think otherwise until the secret life began to snowball and it got too big for him. And Some of you might have seen that he robbed the M Resort and Casino as a last-ditch effort to get himself out of the mess he made. Now, when he did that, he used inside information that he got from my mom who worked there at the time. And then investigators had to investigate her and they talked to her on multiple occasions and they cleared her. But my dad was caught red-handed, so now... He's in the Three Lakes prison doing his time and paying the penalty for what he did. He's serving his sentence. And the church he started, Grace Bible Church Las Vegas, it dissolved. It ended. It's gone. And Pastor Roland and Vilma courageously, along with everyone who continued to walk with us, they started this church in the aftermath separately. And I can't begin to tell you in this time what kind of pain we went through as a result of my dad's actions. 
as a family, as a church. People in this church could probably tell you their own stories and the pain they wrestled with and experienced in the aftermath of that. And now that we're on the other side and God has brought us victory and God is moving through us, I can't help but think back to those moments as a warning. Because if we don't deal with our own iniquity, if we don't deal with our own sin, if we do not grow, then we carry the same potential to cause the same kind of pain. So in the aftermath of that, as I healed, I also had to look in the mirror and say, what kind of sin and iniquity exist inside you, Matt? What is God teaching me? And I ask that same question to you. What's in you? And how is God calling you to change and challenging you to grow? And while that process of growth and the conversation of it can be scary, it's important and it's good because if we do participate with God and grow as a person and become more like Christ, then we get to experience God's purpose. We have the choice of remaining the same and potentially causing pain or becoming more like Christ and chasing him down and experiencing the beautiful purpose of God. And I hope with all of my heart that's the choice we make. But it is a choice. It is a choice. That's why 2 Corinthians 2.22 told us, therefore, 21, excuse me, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So we participate in our growth with God by cleansing ourselves. And whenever this passage refers to honorable vessels, it brings to mind the image of gold and silver. Has anyone ever seen raw gold before it's refined before? It's not that pretty. It's kind of ugly. You might not know what you're looking at. That's typically what gold looks like when it comes up out of the ground. And when they get this gold ore or silver ore, they have to break it down, and then they put it in a refinery where it's heated up so much that it melts. And then when it's melted, the gold can be separated from all of its impurities and the less desirable metals. Once all these impurities are gone, it can be recooled and re-solidified and shaped into the beautiful vessels and jewelry that we know and that we're familiar with. But it requires that process of refining. It requires heat and pressure requires the intentional act of separating impurity from what is good in order to prepare a vessel for purpose and good work. And that is a process of growth and refining that God invites us into. But we need to be ready for it. And we need to be willing to say, I want to participate in this process. I want God to refine me. I want to become the best version of myself so I can bring glory to God. Now, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, and it's very likely that Timothy fully participated with this process because as far as we can tell, Timothy actually continued to serve in Ephesus until he died there as a martyr for his faith. He was an instrument for the glory of God. And I can't speak for anyone else, but I want to be, I want to be an instrument for the glory of God. 
I therefore must submit myself to this process of refining and heating and pressure and squeezing so that God can remove the impurity from me and make me more like Christ. And that's why in the aftermath of everything my dad did, I had moments where I'm sitting alone in my room or in my car, praying and shouting my prayers to God, becoming angry, and the Holy Spirit convicts me of my anger. How is that fair? I have a right to be angry. And yet, God is taking the sinful aspects and expressions of my anger from me so I can be more like Christ. And of course, I had to wrestle with forgiveness. I had to wrestle with it, not just every day, but often many moments of every day. And I had to forgive my dad and other people who became involved with his situation again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And sometimes I'm still triggered. I forgive again. But every time I forgive, I learn what it takes for Jesus to forgive me. He's making me more like him. This process eventually helped me become a better minister. A few years after everything happened, maybe around 2020 or so, my dad is in prison. And it took that long for him to fully accept the responsibility of his actions. And a day came where we were on the phone and he said, you know, I want to grow and I want to get close to God again. And I, I honestly just don't know how anymore. And my friends in ministry, I'm not connected to them and I... I'm not blaming anyone. I know it's my fault. But he says to me, son, you're the only one I have left. So will you pastor me? My dad in jail asked me to pastor him. And I wanted to say, no! Are you kidding? But the Holy Spirit would only allow me to say yes. You want to grow as a minister? Go pastor your dad. Who hurts you? And yet, I took what I had and we read some books together and he began to unpack his life in ways that he never had before. We had conversations at a level we've never had before, even when he was in ministry and I was. And God began to work on his heart and I'm hopeful that when he comes out, he'll be equipped to make the right choices. Now, of course, God said, love people the way I love you. God forgives and loves immediately. Forgiveness is extended immediately. Trust is not immediate in the kingdom of God. God gives us a little, and then we prove we can steward it, and then he trusts us more. So when my dad gets out, that's how I'm going to love and trust him. Love is already extended. Trust, if it ever looks the same, will take time. But I hope that my God has put the right things in him for him to make the right choices. And God used me in that process. As God taught me to serve the people that have hurt me. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I felt that. So God was teaching me to grow and inviting me into this process of being refined as an individual, as a child of God, and also as a minister. He also invites you into that process. He wants to make us new so we can experience him and experience his purpose. So how do we do it? We must move in a new direction. We as new people need to move in a new direction. And we move in a new direction when we make new decisions. Day after day after day, time after time after time. And the consistency pays off in the end. 
Here's how that passage concludes in 2 Timothy. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's like the Bible is beginning to paint a picture for us. And on one hand is all of our sin, our youthful passions. It continues and names other things. Really just any sin or iniquity you can name is over here on one side. And Paul says to Timothy, and run toward love and righteousness and faith and hope and peace. So now the Bible presents with us to us this picture of fleeing the bad stuff and running toward the good stuff and becoming more like Jesus along the way. It's almost like this straight line. And in the beginning of our Christian walk and our Christian journey, it can feel like a straight line because we know what we're supposed to stop doing. So when I started to follow Jesus again, it wasn't hard for me to figure out, hey, if I go to church on Sunday morning, maybe I should not be hungover when I do it. I'm going to stop drinking the night before. And you know what? I don't need to get that wasted. I don't need to get wasted at all. I can still have fun. In fact, I'd like to have fun and remember what the heck happened. So now I'm journeying closer and closer and closer to Jesus and further and further and further away from my sin. And by the way, having a drink is not a sin. Submitting to drunkenness is a sin because an alcohol, a drink is in charge of you and not Jesus. Anyway, that's just a side note. But I'm running away from these sins. And I'm telling myself, hey, maybe I should start talking to Jesus more than Jezebel. I'm not going to talk to all these women anymore. I'm going to position myself to honor God in marriage. So I'm going to leave these issues and leave these opportunities behind and pursue Christ. So it's easy for us to conceptualize what it's like to leave some sins behind and walk toward Jesus. But it's not going to be that easy forever, is it? It gets a little harder after some time. And it gets harder because maybe we've run out of the obvious sins. Or maybe we're more attached to the sins that we're holding on to. Or maybe we're better at disguising our sin or disguising our compromise and dressing it up in beautiful religious wrapping. But really what it represents is that we have ceased to progress closer to God, ceased to progress in our growth, and we are trying to hold on to Jesus at the same time as we're trying to hold on to compromise. And at that moment when it gets difficult, we start to see that Christian growth is not a straight line, it's an incline. But as we journey further on this incline, and take each difficult step and make each necessary decision to become like Christ, we find that the end result is so worth it. Um, two, weeks, two Sundays ago, my family was out in Hawaii to celebrate my cousin-in-law's wedding. So Jerrica's cousin is named Jacob. Uh, Jacob married Raven. I did the ceremony. It was beautiful. And while we were there at the reception, we got to reconnect with our friends, Jesse and Tiffany. Um, when Jesse and Tiffany got married, I was the MC at their wedding. When they got engaged, Jerrica sang while Jesse proposed. And that reminded me of that moment when Jerrica sang because uh, Jesse wanted to propose to Tiffany at the top of the trail. <laughs> it was a hike. So on that morning, Jerrica and I met up and we found a few of our friends at the bottom of a mountain and we started that hike together. And we're walking and walking 
up this hill. And someone starts getting tired. This someone happened to be the person who was responsible for singing. Who happens to be my wife. I asked her first. So anyway, we told our friends, hey guys, we know we're slowing you down. Go on ahead. We'll catch up to you. So Jericho and I go step by step up this hill. Climbing this mountain. And then we had to slow down. Because it's getting steeper. Because it's getting longer. Because the weight of having traveled for so long, it accumulates. So we rest. Then we get up and we go again. And then we rest again. And then we get up and we go three steps and we sit down again. Like, what is going on? There are children passing us. But finally, we find the courage to continue all the way because Jesse and Tiffany are going to catch us if we don't. Like, what are you guys doing on this hike? So we get all the way to the top. And at this point, I'm tired too. And a few minutes later, Jesse and Tiffany show up. And Jericho finds it in herself as an experienced singer to sing this proposal song. And our friend proposes to his now wife and gives her a beautiful diamond. And here we are more than 10 years later, reminiscing with them about the beautiful memories that we shared all these years later. So while it was difficult ascending this incline, the end result was worth it. And it will be worth it for the rest of our lives. The difficulty of growing to becoming more like Jesus can be hard. And it means that we have to leave some things behind. And it means that we have to push and persevere and pursue Jesus. But it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And this is why the Apostle Paul concludes this letter to his spiritual son. This might very well be the last thing he ever wrote on earth. But he thinks back at his life and he thinks back at the difficulty and the shipwrecks and the riots. And he thinks about how they honored God along the way. And this is what he writes at the end of 2 Timothy. This is chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. Paul looks back at his life and he says, you know what, it's worth it. I have this crown of righteousness waiting for you, for me. And if you love Jesus and if you follow him, that crown is waiting for you too. The only question remains is who will you be when you receive it? Will you look very similar to the way you started when you first began to follow Jesus? Or will you have gone through the battles and climbed that mountain and become as close to an image and representation of Christ as you possibly can be along the way. When we stand before God, we will stand before him alone. Others will watch, but it's, it's me and God. It's you and God. And we will solely stand before him as the people we've become. So who, you, who will you become in the process? 
who will you be along the way? Will it be the same old you? Or will you learn to be new by the grace of God? Like Timothy, like I'm trying to be, and like many of us are trying to be together. So how do we become new people? God makes us new. But it requires our participation. And we become new and we grow in God when we move in a new direction by making these new decisions every single day. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your great love. And you could have rejected us and abandoned us and left us to ourselves. And you didn't. You give us a new opportunity to become new people. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit and your grace, we'd be empowered to become new people and participate with you on that journey. Holy Spirit, reveal to us now in our hearts the ways in which we must change. Not anyone else. We as your children standing before you alone, not pointing fingers, allowing you to point out what you want to change. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that in the context of community and in relationship with you. And if heads can remain bowed and eyes closed in this moment, if you're here this morning and you know you need to start that relationship with Jesus, you want to walk toward him, you need God to make you brand new and do the part that only he's responsible for. You know, you don't have that relationship with Jesus, but you want to be brand new. You want to confess your faith in him. You want to be born again, be a Christian. And if that's you on the count of three, could you just raise your hand? One, two, three. Anybody here? Thank you, my brother. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hands. Anybody else? Okay, so for those of you who raise your hands, I want to invite you to repeat after me. And we'll do what we talked about in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth, your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, then you will be saved. So please repeat after me if that's you and the church can repeat along with us. Say, Father in heaven, I believe that you sent Jesus to walk this earth, that he lived a perfect life and he died in my place then he rose again three days later. Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God. Help me to follow you. Help me to know you. Help me to live for you. Help me to be brand new. In your name, Jesus. Amen.